Thank you very much. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. It's nice to be here with you this morning. Um, can I just start by praying? Is that all right? Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for every single mother here this morning. Jesus, we thank you for the gift that they are to us, both as husbands and as sons. And Father, I pray that this morning they will have a significant morning, that they will feel blessed and loved, and that that will go for everybody in this building, not just the mums as well. Great. Um, Today, I'm going to have a look at uh, one amazing mother in the Bible. And for those of you who are tempted to switch off and think, well, hold on, I'm not a mum, so maybe actually I don't need to pay attention. That's okay. If you're not a mum in this room, it's not a problem. Neither am I. I can confirm that the rumors aren't true. We do have a baby due in about two and a half weeks. Maybe. It's fine. We're not ready. It's fine. Um, But I can confirm I'm not the mother. It's all good. Um, So if you are tempted to switch off, please don't. Please stay with me. Because even though I'm going to be talking about mothers, that doesn't mean I'm just talking to mothers. Okay? So just try and stick with me, and hopefully we will learn something together this morning. But we come across this mother um, in the Bible in a book of the Bible called 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And it starts like this. There was a certain man, not the mother, just in case you're concerned, from Ramathame, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimites, there's some amazing names in that, isn't there? I'm not going to name my child any of those names. Again, rumors. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. And year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Again, not going to call it any of those names. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. So there's this guy called Elkanah who's got two wives, extremely brave man, much braver than I am, but he has two wives for one reason or another, Um, and one of them doesn't have any children, and at the time, culturally, that was really significant. A lot of the self-worth and a lot of the value placed on her in the community was based on whether or not you were able to give kids to to your husband, and that was a real issue culturally at the time. It is less of an issue now, but we do have issues that are linked to our self-worth. Some of it may be body image, some of it may be finance, and maybe how much material wealth you have, but sometimes there are issues in life that are linked to our value as perceived by other people. It doesn't have to be how it's perceived to you, but sometimes it is how it's perceived to other people. Remember, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, but Hannah has an issue. And she's got somebody in her life that is making that more and more and more of a problem, who happens to be a direct rival with her. And we know that there are issues in life. We know that there are struggles in life and that sometimes people can make them better or they can make them worse. And that's just the way life is. But what's great about this story and about the Bible in general is that the Bible is full of struggles 
And actually, that tells me something very important. It tells me that when you have a struggle in your life, that there are struggles in life, and that God knows. God knows that life is difficult. God knows that there are struggles in life. And that, to me, is an encouraging thought. That actually God knows my struggle, God understands my struggle, God knows that there are difficulties in life. Now, you may be going through a struggle at the moment. You may not, and if you're not, fantastic. That is brilliant. Enjoy life while it's good. It won't always be good. But that's okay. When it's good, enjoy it. Rejoice and love that time because it's a very important time. But when there's a struggle, remember, God knows that you're struggling. Jesus even acknowledges this. John 16.33 says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So though there are struggles, Jesus is greater, as we've just sang. Jesus is stronger. And actually, for those of you who are married, I'm not talking just to married people this morning, but if you are married, um, Paul, in one of his letters, a letter to the Corinthians, makes a connection, direct connection between trouble and marriage. So just for those of you who are married, but those who marry will face many, many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. I am extremely privileged to be married to a wonderful woman. Just to, just to preface, preface what I'm going to say. But those of you who are married will know that marriage doesn't make life simpler. It makes it more complicated because it tends to highlight the issues that you have personally. I know that my marriage has highlighted some issues that I have personally um, over the course of our seven, 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 seven years. First time. Check it out. First time. First time. But sometimes life is difficult and some of the decisions that we make and the choices that we make and the vows that we make don't necessarily make life difficult, but sometimes can cause us difficulty further down the line. And it's some things that we need help from God to work through. So it's encouraging that God knows that life is hard. And Hannah has this struggle. Fortunately, though, speaking of marriage, she has a very, very supportive husband who always knows how to say the right thing. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? You've got me. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? It's a strong moment for husbands everywhere. Sometimes, and I can only speak for myself, I'm sure all you other gentlemen don't suffer from this, but sometimes I have a talent for saying the wrong thing. I often don't realize it's the wrong thing, and often my intentions are very, very good. Um, like I say, we have, a, we have a new child. It won't be that big, it'll be that big, because it'll be lying down. Um, but we have a new child due in about two and a half weeks. We have a three-year-old child who is this tall at the moment, give or take, um, called Gideon, who is amazing. Um, but when he was born, we went through the process of a natural birth and having labor. I have cleared this with my wife. I am allowed to tell this story. It's okay. Um, and during labor, laborers, as some of you may know from experience, and some of you may have just seen one born every minute, um, can be quite a painful process and a very difficult process for the lady. Um, it can be quite a time-consuming process for the man, um, <laughs> but obviously not quite as painful, etc. And at one point... 
At one point during labor, I was trying to um, encourage my wife and help my wife through this difficult time. And so I, I used this phrase of, oh, come on, we can do this, <laughs> right? I know, gents, you're thinking, that's amazing, genius. I will use that, that's perfect. No. Um, the response that I got from, use it, from saying that sentence was, there's no we about it. <laughs> Which, in essence, was true. But sometimes, well-meaning, we can say completely the wrong thing. And I would hazard a guess that in Elkanah's case, this was probably completely the wrong thing. So, ladies, please forgive us when we don't say the right thing, however well-meaning it is, when actually we say completely the wrong thing. Just remember, it's not our fault, it's biblical. Okay? <laughs> Just leaving it out there. But... It does raise an interesting point, which is that some people just will not understand your struggle. Some people just won't get it. Some people will not rejoice with you. Some people will not mourn with you. Some people will not weep with you. Some people just won't understand why you're feeling the way that you are. That's just how it is. They may be people close to you as well, and that may hurt. They may be people distant from you, and you can remove yourself from that. That's okay. But some people just won't get it. But God knows. Fortunately, the story continues from Elkanah's insensitivity. Once, when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. That's a promise and a half, isn't it? As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer, just to clarify. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went on her way and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. Hannah's response to her circumstances, to her suffering, was to pour out her heart to God. She did it in the temple. You might do it at home. You might do it in your car. You might do it in church. You might do it at your workplace. But to pour out your heart to God. And that response may be misinterpreted by other people. Again, other people may not get it. But that response to suffering, to pour out your heart before God, is a wonderful thing. Because what she did was she clung on to the fact that not only did God know about her suffering, but that God cared about her suffering. And often it's easy to forget that. But we know that God cares. We know that he loves us. We know that his heart is for us. That his eyes are always searching for us. So God cares. 
And actually, what she was doing is she was doing what it says in 1 Peter, which is cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. She was doing it before they'd even written those words. It's a principle of life that when it's tempting to give up, sometimes you just got to keep going. When it's tempting to just throw it all away, keep going. If you're struggling, keep going. If you have doubts, keep going. Keep going. Romans 5 says this, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. It doesn't say it's easy, notice, but it says we can rejoice. It's an option. For we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And it goes on to say that that hope does not disappoint us. Jesus will not disappoint you. If you pour out your heart to him and you place everything in his hands, you cast all your anxiety onto him, he will not disappoint you. That hope will come through. That phrase, character building, is quite a, an interesting phrase. It was an interesting phrase for me growing up because I used to relate it to household chores or household jobs. Anytime I was doing the washing up or anytime I was digging in the garden or doing anything that my dad had asked me to do, why are you making me do this? Because it's character building. But it does build character in us. Not necessarily digging the garden, although that might do, depending on what character issues you're trying to deal with. But suffering will build character in you. And it teaches us that God is faithful. And that God gives to the faithful. That those who are persistent and those who endure and those who stick through to the end, God gives to. That God will reward. So if you are struggling, keep going. Bear with me. So we'll continue with the story. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Samuel lit translates as God has heard. God will hear what you are asking him for. It may take a length of time between, the, between actually hearing that and the fulfillment of the promise. Pregnancy takes nine months, give or take. It's getting closer. But the fulfillment of the promise will come. It will come. God is faithful and God gives. And Hannah gave thanks for this child. But what she does next is very interesting. When her husband... No, Yes, when her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do you ever read the Bible and apply a little bit of kind of common sense thinking to a certain extent or real world thinking or maybe just my attitude thinking? But I read this and go, I'm sorry, what? 
This is the fulfillment of the promise that you have been crying out for your entire life. You've been sick and tired of this other woman going on at you day after day because you don't have kids. And then God gives you a child and you decide to send him away forever. Seriously. But Hannah understood something that we often forget. And that's that Samuel was a gift from God. But he wasn't a gift just for her. He was a gift for the whole of the nation of Israel. If you read further into this book, and into 2 Samuel, in fact, you will see that Samuel goes on to anoint the first two kings of Israel. He shapes a nation. And Hannah gives him up, sends him away, devotes him to the Lord, because she recognized that, yes, her son was a gift, and an amazing gift, and a beautiful gift. But he wasn't just a gift for her. And God gives us all sorts of different things. And the vast majority of them, I would suggest, aren't meant just for us. They're meant for other people as well. If you've got kids, you will know that they're a gift from God. And you hopefully will recognize them as a gift from God. I know that my kids are a gift from God. But they're not just for me. My son, Gideon will not grow up, staying it, saying it now, he will not grow up to be God's gift to women. <laughs> Just saying it. He might be God's gift to one woman, and so I'll do everything that I can to help him grow and develop in that way, with that angle in mind. But he's not just for me. He's a gift to every single person that he comes into contact with, whether that's school teachers, whether that's business people that he will work with, whether it's um, people that he just bumps into in, into in the street, whether it's his friends, his family, he is a gift to them just as much as he is a gift to me. Now, I've still got responsibility for him. I'm still responsible for that gift, but he's not just a gift for me. And if you have kids, you will understand that it takes a great deal of faith to have those hopes and dreams for your kids because you will. I have hopes and dreams for my kids. You will have hopes and dreams for your kids. And it's it's so difficult and yet so important to treasure those gifts, recognize them, but submit them to God and say, this is what I want for my child, but ultimately I want what you want for them. And what I want for my child may not actually be how their life turns out, but it takes a great deal of faith to do that. If you don't have kids, consider this. I believe that every good thing in your life comes from God. You might believe that as well. You might not. Just from a material aspect, we live in the top 25 countries in the world. So we have a great deal more than a lot of other people in the world anyway. But every good thing, I believe, is a gift from God. But it's not necessarily just a gift for you. We're in the process of moving house at the moment. We're about to have a child and move house at the same time. If we're going to do something, we believe in doing it properly. Um, so <laughs> it's fine. Um, but when we moved into the house that we currently live in, um, we decided to give it a name. Some people name their houses. Um, some people name their cars. If you're one of these people who name your cars, bless you. I don't understand you, but fair enough. Um, but um, we decided to give our house a name, um, and we gave it the name Nodva, which is spelled N-O-D-D-F-A. It's Welsh. Don't ask for logic. Um, but Nodva, which means sanctuary or safe place, because that's what we wanted our house to be. 
both for us and for our kids and for anybody else that came in. And we're going to take that name with us when we move house because we believe that our house is a gift, but it's not just for us. Now, it doesn't mean that you open your doors to absolutely everybody. You've got, you know, you've got responsibilities protecting your kids and all of that stuff as well. So. But it's a gift. For you, if you don't have a house, you may have a car. Your car is a gift. might not just be a gift for you. Your finances are a gift, but not just for you. Your relationships are a gift, but not just for you. Everything that you have in your life is a gift of God, but it's not just for you. Your life is a gift. Every single breath, every single morning that you wake up, I believe, is a gift because it's not guaranteed. And some of us know that more, more poignantly than others. But your life is a gift. But it's not just for you. If you are a Christian, if you've given your life to God, that you've invited Jesus into your heart, your salvation is a gift. But it's not just for you. It's for everybody else that you will meet. God's love is a gift but it's not just for you. In the Gospel of John, God mentions the concept of giving to his people 54 times. I know because I counted. 54 times. That's more than one a week. God is in the business of giving. He's a generous God. He's an extravagant God. And he wants to bless you. And he wants to fulfill your life and give you life in all its fullness. But it's not just for you. And if you don't know Jesus, God has a gift for you today. It's the gift of salvation. It's the gift of a clean slate. That anything that you have done in your past can be gone, erased. It says that God remembers your sins no more, as if they didn't even exist. He uses the symbolism of washed white as snow. We had snow this morning. And if you would like to receive that gift this morning, I'm just going to pray a very short prayer. And I'd like you to join in with me. Jesus, I thank you that you are a generous God and that you want to give me this gift of eternal life. So Jesus, come into my heart. I give myself to you. I want to know you and I want to see more of you in my life. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, then I'd love you just to pop up your hand and just let me know. And someone will come and talk to you at the end. That's great. For those of us who are left, and for those people, I still believe that God wants to give something to you today. Whether it's a sense of restoration, a sense of peace, a deeper understanding of his love, 
whatever it happens to be, whatever you need for your circumstance right now, I believe that God wants to give it to you. And the Bible says that you have not because you ask not. Can I encourage you this week to ask God for for a gift from him? For what you need in this season of your life, whatever your struggle, if life is good, if life is bad, whatever it happens to be, ask him for a gift from him today. And I've got a takeaway for you to go away and have a look at during the week, which is what gifts has God given you in your life? You could, if this week is particularly poignant to you, you could adjust that to what gifts is God giving me this week? But also along with that, how can you use those gifts to help others or to reach others? I hope you have a great week.